1: This episode, we're discussing John Lanchester's novel, Capital. I'm Dan Coitz, editor of the Slate Book Review, here in Slate's DC studio. Joining me from our New York studio is Emily Bazelon, a Slate senior editor. Hi, Emily. Hey, Dan. And David Hagland, editor of Slate's culture blog, Browbeat. Hi, David. Hi, Dan. Capital is a sprawling look at modern-day London, following a score of characters all revolving around a small street in Clapham in South London. Some of the characters live on Peeps Road and are therefore fantastically rich, thanks simply to the incredible inflation of real estate prices in that trendy neighborhood. Some of the characters work on Peeps Road, contractors, nannies, corner shop owners, parking wardens, and the like. And someone is sneaking around Peeps Road taking photos and sending personalized postcards reading, we want what you have. I saw Lanchester Reed last month at uh, Politics and Prose here in D.C., where he explained that he set out specifically with this book to write a, quote, big London novel, which I guess is a genre. In fact, it's a genre in and of itself in the same way that the big New York novel is also a genre. So, David, I wanted to start with you. Um, where do you think that capital fits in the canon of big
2: London novels? Well, Dan, I'm, I'm afraid I have to begin the discussion on a somewhat contentious note because I, uh, I reject the premise of your question. Oh,
0: my God. It's as, not about London. I read the whole book it, and thought it was about London. It is.
2: It is very much about London and is also big. But I don't think that the London novel, novel is a genre. I think it's a category. It's sort of a pseudo genre. Um, but, you know, the real genres, tragedy, romance, comedy, etc they imply kinds of stories. And I think uh, the category Big London Novel only implies a setting and a page count and not a story. And that's, I think, what this novel is missing. I is think a it story. Is a story. I think in, in terms of story, I think it has both too much and not enough. You know, it piles character upon character upon character um, in order to create this giant city. But But isn't that the structure of the big Insert City
1: Here novel? They pile characters on top of characters on top of characters and we see the ways they interact?
0: But don't the best novels in that genre also tell a very rich story? And I'm thinking now, I kept thinking about Trollope and The Way We Live Now, which is one of my favorite novels. I'll just say that right Out now, but similarly, it has shifting viewpoints among a variety of characters, somewhat from different social strata. Perhaps not as kind of deliberately as Lanchester does, and yet I feel like I remember those characters, and I am not going to remember the people in this book, with maybe one or two small exceptions.
2: Right, I agree. I mean, you get you get one after another. The the point for me, uh, at at which I became uh, somewhat exasperated, was when we met. So one of the characters that you meet right off the bat is uh, an older woman um, who lives I think she's eighty two or something. She
0: Petunia Howe.
2: Petunia Howe. Um, and she lives in one of the houses on this road and it's you know not really updated. It's she's a throwback to the sort of middle class London of the post war years. And uh, and then we meet her grandson who is essentially Banksy, a sort of right. nationalized for Smitty. Smitty. Um, And he's an interesting character. And then we meet her daughter and his mother. And and that was about halfway through. And it was at that point I realized, we're just going to keep meeting characters. You know, we get these chapters... Uh, Each one of them has basically a similar degree of importance. There's no central protagonist. And
0: some of the characters are total caricatures, right? Particularly Roger and Arabella Yount, who are the kind of nouveau riche, completely crass, really horrible couple uh, whose misfortune is another thread through the novel. I decided about halfway through that the only way to enjoy this book was as a portrait of this street and of this social moment in the life of London, as opposed to looking for a story in it. And I started thinking then about Bonfire of the Vanities and how it kind of matched up into that social satire of the very wealthy and the aspiring in that genre.
1: Right. Right. I guess I don't know what other... I mean, I I believe that that that's the way this novel is meant to be enjoyed and appreciated. And I mean, and I think... To go back to David's point, I think that that is indeed the structure of the big insert city novel. I think it's, I mean, it's sort of uh, In esque to to mention. Director uses this structure a lot. Yeah, um, it's it is a lot of different stories, a lot of different people characters who keep getting introduced and who bounce off each other in interesting ways, giving us a portrait of a time and place, which to me is is particularly interesting and it didn't leave me craving like a better plot engine in this story. So but it's interesting, David, that you felt like that this, that this novel had almost like a game of Thrones problem to you, that it kept introducing characters and you kept caring about them less and less as, as they introduced more and more.
2: Yeah, very much so. And I think the Inuritu comparison is a good one because, um, I was actually just talking about this with a friend recently that the, the sort of network narrative that, that he uses, um, uh, my friend and I were also talking about Magnolia, the Paul Thomas Anderson movie, which I actually love. But uh, it is does seem to be, uh, it's probably not a recent invention, but at least a somewhat faddish mode of, of storytelling, both in the movies and also in novels. And I think that is what Lanchester's doing, but I, I think it's a mistake. The big London novel I thought of when you um, brought up that category is uh, Our Mutual Friend by Dickens, which also has a bunch of characters, and they're all interconnected and kind of Sometimes even goofy ways, but it's also a story, and it starts with a dead body, and there's an inheritance, and there's a marriage, and uh, this this the incidents all felt relatively small. They sort of there's an inheritance in this, there's a body,
1: there's a marriage. <laughs>
0: They're so minor, though. I mean, Dan, did the whole postcard motif work for you? Because in a sense, it's what the novel is ha- using to hang together, right? Because every a lot of the residents on the street are getting these postcards. They are different degrees of worried about them. I found it very contrived. What did you think? Oh,
1: yeah, it's totally contrived. I mean, so like we do, so uh, obviously for those listeners who have not read the novel but are for some reason listening to this podcast anyway, um, we are going to oh, talk about how the people. story ends. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> we are going to talk about how the story ends. There will be spoilers. But um, so we do find out in the end um, who's been delivering these we-want-what-you-have postcards and sort of creating attendant mischief along with uh, along with them. It turns out it's actually two people. It's um, one of the brothers of the shopkeeper who runs the corner shop, Usman Kamal, and then it's also Smitty, the Banksy-esque art provocateur's ex-assistant. But, like, in the end, we definitely don't care. Like, I didn't care who was doing them, and it seemed to me to be... Uh, I mean, I don't know exactly what the history of it was in within the novel. It seemed like it was something that Lanchester thought up initially um, as a way to tie all these people together, and then he sort of lost interest in it as the novel went on, as I did. But that didn't necessarily bother me because it ended up being such. A, it took up such a minor amount of space in the actual flow of the novel that it's not like it it got in the way of the other stuff.
0: So, give us a favorite moment of yours or a favorite character that you felt like really drew you in.
1: Sure. Um, so I really liked uh, Zbigniew Zbigniew mm-hmm. Tomachowski. Um, He's the best guy. Yeah, in I the agree. Book. Oh, great. Yeah. So he. Uh, so the novel um, deals both with the the residents, as I said, of of Peep's Road. Um, a- including roger and arabella whom emily hates so vividly
0: oh my god you um, want to defend them they're written to be indefensible
1: well we'll talk about them later but um it also deals with the people who work for them and and my favorite character in the book is Zbigniew, who's a polish immigrant um he's arabella's contractor he's actually the contractor for several houses um he also deals with petunia's house after she spoiler alert dies and um and uh, he is just an extremely capable, extremely smart uh, guy who is really good at his job and who is determined that the thing that will set him apart from English contractors is that they are all terrible at their jobs and lazy and dumb. And he, on the other hand, is is always on time, always gives estimates that are close to what a work, uh, to what the work will actually cost and how much time it will actually take, and does a good job and doesn't, sort of get all wrapped up in the lives of his foolish, rich customers. But meanwhile, he's living his own life, his own parallel London life, which he views as being essentially false. Like, he views his real life as being the Polish life that he's left behind, and to which he will eventually return um, once he has earned enough capital to go back to Poland and start a business with his dad. Um, And a lot of the great sections of the novel are about his observations of the foolish people that he deals with, but also his observations of the way that life in London Works. And I actually wanted to read one section uh, of uh, of his in which he um, is sort of toting up the ways in which, similarly to the ways that he can be so superior to English contractors, he's working out the ways that he can be superior to English men in the dating scene. Um, and so this is about the way he sets himself up in the dating world. Uh, Zbigniew is on page 104. Zbigniew took a different approach. Women were a practical issue, a real-world problem, and like other problems, were best solved with a methodical and pragmatic approach. Zbigniew had not rules, but maxims. He would chase a girl only if he had good reason to think she was already interested. He had never been in love. He said he didn't believe in it. His philosophy was that if you were clean and financially solvent and not ugly, you were already in the top 30% of men. If, in addition, you listened to what women said to you or were able to fake doing so convincingly, you were in the top 10 or even 5%. Then all it took was to apply common sense. Don't seem desperate. Don't get drunk. Do let the girl get drunk. And harness the power of texting. And then other things, like going out midweek when there was less competition. It was all to do with improving your percentages.
0: That is great dating advice. But I'm so glad in the novel when he actually lets himself fall in love, right? Sure.
2: I like that character. I think he was one of the more interesting, more compelling ones in the book. I I do think that... Um, He's occasionally sentimentalized, uh, and there's a pass- How so? there's a passage near the very end where so Sipigniev uh, ends up with uh, Matya, the Hungarian nanny hired by Roger and Arabella. That's and a very def-
0: drop dead gorgeous. Yes. please don't leave that out. <laughs> no,
2: I know she's she, she's drop dead gorgeous, and she herself feels, you know, not like not the most realized character in this book. I mean, she sort of steps in as the the beautiful nanny who's great with the kids that Roger falls for. And then, you know, is in turn um, smitten with the uh, the Polish builder. Although and of course,
0: to, we see her make this turn from at first dismissing him as being beneath her as a fellow member of the servant class to right. realizing that he has the heart of gold at the end of the rainbow.
2: Right. And in fact, what she says is that um, uh, this is on page 483. She says his Polishness meant that he knew who he was. There was nothing fake about Zbigniew, no f- false notes to his talk or personality. It was refreshing. Oddly so, most men these days felt as if they were trying to sell you something, some version of themselves to try and get into your pants by pretending to be someone they were not. And I think one, you know, you can imagine a distance between her thoughts and John Lanchester's there. I don't know that I see it. Uh, You know, this idea that he's sort of Polish and therefore more real and more authentic than his English uh, neighbors. I, I found that. Idea somewhat annoying.
0: And it's a shortcut, right? And that's my central objection to this book and to this whole genre of stitched together with two dimensional characters social satire, which is that we never really, the writers are allowed, they allow themselves these shortcuts because they're not really probing the depths of anyone's psyche. And I don't mean to be too harsh about this. I enjoy these books fine. I was like perfectly happy turning the pages of this novel, but I just feel like in the end, it's not giving me what I really, really want from a great book, which is, like, this much deeper, richer sense of human beings and who they might be that isn't just able to be summarized in, like, he's Polish, therefore he's a good man at heart.
2: Right. is already courting. Um, I, I don't want to make it sound like he's sort of uh, horribly stereotyping these characters because I think he's working with actual social types and he's trying to – present the sorts of people who actually live in London. And one of the sorts of people who lives in London are Polish builders. It's actually, I mean, it, it is a stereotype there of the kind and of... And
0: Muslim the, shopkeepers, yes, right?
2: Yes, exactly. From Pakistan and, you know, rich Tories and, and so on. Um, I, I don't actually mind that, but then you have to kind of imbue them with something. And, you know, I think he mostly achieves that with the beginning of. I think the worst character is probably Arabella. I think she's not... Given anything, uh, it almost, to a degree that almost surprised me. I mean, insofar as there's a villain in this book, it's her.
0: And she writes this ridiculous and amazing note to her husband <laughs> part of the way through, which I so objected to. She decides that she's the one with the hard life because she hangs out with the children, but she doesn't. She has a full-time nanny, so we know that that's insane and that what she's really doing is getting her nails done every day. I mean, this is like the total nightmare cartoon version of the stay-at-home mother, right? right? And she writes this note to him. She's going to go off for two days, and she basically says, like, now you're going to find out how hard my life is. Fuck off, Arabella. Who does such a thing? I'm sorry. Nobody does that.
2: Well, not only that, but after she goes away, um, the kids don't miss her.
0: No, and her husband, like, falls apart in the most sort of comical and over-the-top dad scene where he literally, like, has the kids, you know, whatever. It's just right. exactly well, what you'd expect. And it was funny, but it's such a cheap shot.
2: Well, and and the fact that – I mean, I, I thought this was a, an unusual mistake for the book in that um, when the kids don't even miss their mother, that just seemed unlikely to me. I mean, I –
0: no matter how checked out, yeah, she exactly. Might be. No matter,
2: yeah, no matter how much of her time she spends shopping, you know, they're they're little children.
0: Yeah, they, Arabella they're... is like Betty from Mad Men on Smack, like in terms <laughs> of her relationships with her kids.
2: <laughs> did, did she? Well, not I mean, leave in the book for you, Dan.
1: Well, I mean, it's interesting in the sense that you talk about the novel us- utilizing these social types, and they and Arabella and Roger are definitely social types. But they r- reminded me not of—I mean, she reminded me not of Betty and Mad Men so much as they both reminded me of Dickens' characters. I mean, it seemed to me that it's not at all unlike what Dickens did in his big London novels and using these types and making some of them really, indeed, utterly repugnant because he feels they're repugnant. I mean, I, I mean, there are a lot of ways in which you can deepen characters and and build them so that they even the most repellent of them are sympathetic and i do think honestly that lanchester does make roger sort of cheerfully stupidly sympathetic and a bunch of in many ways much as i would like a really stupid dog but i also think that there can be room in a novel like this with like literally 20 or more named characters who get their own sections for one or two characters who are just really comical monsters I, I don't wish, know. in the same way that I don't mind there being one or two characters who are a little bit sainty
0: I wish there was a more fully realized female character to balance out Arabella because Petunia Howe doesn't cut it she's the old lady and I really liked Quentica who's this um, African immigrant who's um, the traffic cop on right. Peeps Road but she like barely shows up
2: right you yeah, know and I, I wouldn't mind if they were more comical I mean, that's that's my other problem—not that they're um, overly stereotyped, but that they're—they just don't have a lot of life. I mean, Arabella didn't really make me laugh in the way that a Dickens character often does, and I, all of this, I think. I mean, I think Lanchester really? did achieve She made exactly, you laugh. Huh? She made you laugh.
1: Oh yeah, like when she's talking to her friend on the phone, and she—they keep referring to each other as like babes—and then John Lanchester notes their ages. Yeah, like I, they are—they were both women
2: were over forty. Well, I, you know, that got a chuckle from you, not from me. <laughs> but uh, Now
0: you're laughing. Yeah, at Dan exactly. Dan laughing. At,
2: at Dan's, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, think, I think Lanchester really did set out what, did achieve what he set out to achieve. Um, and I think that he dialed down the sort of comical aspect of it on purpose, I suspect. I mean, uh, getting back to that, that idea of the network narrative, um, it reminded me, too, of uh, the big James Wood essay from several years ago about hysterical realism. Which was uh, an essay, a review essay of uh, *White Teeth* by Zadie Smith, in which he sort of indicted all Another big London novel. Yes, which
0: I like so much better than this book.
2: Well, you know, Wood indicted the whole category, but one of the things he uh, complained about was that, uh, I mean, it was this idea that they were hysterical, that they were sort of over-eager, over-energized, uh, everything was sort of ridiculous, uh, full of coincidence and you know goofiness, this book doesn't have those things. It feels like that kind of book stripped of mm. all of the kind of craziness.
0: Right. Whereas with Sadie Smith, that book so much feels to me like a first novel. It has this roaring engine of energy behind right. it and these very memorable characters. And it doesn't all make sense. And yet I feel much more forgiving toward it because I felt like she was getting under the skins of people as opposed to having these very thin portrayals that to either mock or kind of sympathize with sentimentally.
2: Right. And the other thing Lanchester um, decides not to do is uh, he doesn't bring everyone together. I mean, as you said with the postcards, when you finally find out where they've been coming from and what the story is, yeah, you kind of shrug.
0: And there's even a neighborhood meeting, which we barely see because we don't really care and we don't know who said what at the meeting. It's told from the point of view of the cops.
2: Right. All of which I think makes the book more quote unquote realistic, uh, but all of which also makes it somewhat less entertaining, I think.
1: But I mean, did you really want the book to end with like, like, I'm trying to figure out how it could have ended, but like there's a bomb on Peep's Road and everyone comes together in the street to discuss their lives
2: and... No, you know what I I really wanted was for um, the sort of conflict that Lanchester sets up at the very beginning in the prologue or preface, whatever he calls it, to be more of the driving force of the book. Because I loved, I really did love that prologue. And part of what I suppose I'm expressing here is just disappointment with the book that when I began it, uh, you know, I was, I was really um, caught up in. He talks about how uh, something had changed in London, and obviously not just in London, but with uh, the value of houses, that, that this had completely changed uh, the way people um, connected with the places where they lived and I th- I think that seems true to me and it's a really interesting idea and it's a really interesting novelistic idea because many novels do have to do with, you know, owning property or not and how much money someone has and how that determines the fate of, you know, these characters. Howard's
0: uh, End, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. And and I just – I the prologue was kind of, you know, a tour de force, I thought. And then you moved into the sort of small, you know, daily lives of these various characters – whose fates were not actually that shaped by their Their relationship to property.
0: Can I read a couple of those lines? Because they were my favorite lines in the book, too. Um, This is from the prologue. The houses had become so valuable to people who already lived in them and so expensive for people who had recently moved into them that they had become central actors in their own right. The houses were now, like people, imperious with needs of their own. And I think you're right. That is such an interesting theme, but he abandons it, essentially.
2: Yeah. And and abandons it partly by, you know, moving from one character to another instead of really kind of focusing on a few whose lives are really shaped by that development.
0: Right. And we see the Younts have this big financial misfortune, although weirdly it's set up early in the book, kind of over foreshadowed Roger doesn't get this million dollar bonus he thinks he has. He says there's – he prophesies ruin. There seems to be no consequence. Then he loses his job and it's like right. there really is a problem um, and they're not going to be able to afford their house and they're going to have to move. But it's so hard to care about them at that, by that point in the book, even if Roger – I think you're right, Dan, is like a golden retriever, that that sort of theme fizzles.
1: <laughs> so the novel does, as David mentions – Set up this idea that these people are defined by their houses and their neighborhood, but also sort of more broadly, as the title suggests, by their balance sheets. Right? Like the novel is really obsessed with how much money each person has, how much money they're saving, how in debt they are, how how much they don't even know they have. In the case of Petunia, how much they want. In the case of Roger, Um, but then it's sort of more broadly uses that metaphor as a way of exploring sort of all their strategic ledger sheets through which they make their way through their lives and their emotional ledger sheets. Um, And I really love that in this novel. I love that theme and metaphor running through because I felt like it did accurately reflect how so many of us think about our lives, how the commodification of everything in our lives and – our day-to-day existence sort of infects our way of thinking about everything about our relationships and about our children and and that seemed very real and notable to me and plus i'm also just the kind of guy who who just wishes that everyone wore their salaries on their shirts all the time because I just want to know. I just always want to know what everyone makes.
0: Great. Right. Plus, um, if we all knew we would have more power in the world than we actually do. I agree. I think that is a strength in the book. And there's one lovely detail that you reminded me of, Dan, which is that – is it Quentin or Quintina? I've I think Quintina. Quintina. I think I – Screwed, wrote her name down allegedly. That's all
1: right. I apparently have been pronouncing Zbigniew's name wrong forever. Thanks, David.
0: Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> so Quintina ends up um, in essentially like immigration detention and there's a hunger strike and other protests going on over the conditions. And one of the things they're striking over is the very tiny allowance, which is like, you know, some pence that they're getting every day. And she says, I just can't imagine why anyone cares because you can't buy anything with this money here. It's a really good illustration of the point you're making, Dan.
1: Right. And and indeed, one of the only things in this entire book that ends up being completely worthless, like absolutely worthless, is in fact a gigantic suitcase full of money. Right. Uh, Zabignia yeah, finds, yeah. as he's renovating Petunia's house after she dies, he finds up in the attic a gigantic suitcase of money that her um, late husband had hidden before he died and apparently had never gotten around to telling her about. But... Uh, the money in the suitcase are old British pound notes, the ones that have been taken out of circulation and that are functionally worthless at this point. And so he makes – he doesn't know that though. He makes the decision to – in the end after torturing himself about it forever to give the money back to the its rightful owner, to Petunia's daughter um, and, and only afterwards discovers that this windfall he thought he had stumbled
2: into is in fact almost
1: totally worthless.
2: I thought that was one of the better moments in the book in part because it really did make use of Lanchester's, I think, pretty sophisticated understanding of finance. And, you know, he also wrote a book that was uh, published in the U.S. as IOU, all about um, this sort of new world that we live in where everyone's in debt. Um, and I, I thought that was great. It's about, you know, the, the taxes and the fines that would be applied as well as the fact that the currency is out of date. And, and it, it's such an unexpected – to me anyway, it was such an unexpected resolution to what f- looked like a very old-fashioned sort of story. Right. And
0: actually that story was compelling. I wanted yeah. to know what, how it was going to end up. And the crazy husband had been set up early enough and well enough in the book that you believed he might have done such a – wacko thing is put the suitcase in the attic
2: yeah and, and in fact i even liked the little uh, you know uh, what little we learned of petunia's um you know long long ago dead husband um you know his relationship to money the way it was then kind of uh described uh by his daughter i think when she's you know kind of imagining okay what what must have happened here uh again i thought it was really interesting because it was getting at this person's relationship to money and how that shaped their life and then how it turned out completely, you know, in the opposite manner that they expected. That was a great little reversal.
0: And there was another, I think, good interlude with money in a character I don't think we've touched on yet, Freddie Camo, who is this African soccer player, total soccer star who comes to London and has a house rented for him on Peeps Road because he's kind of having the red carpet put out before him. And he has signed this enormous contract, which for amounts of money that really make no sense in the land that he's come from. um, And he and his father kind of have to grapple with that and about what happens to him in the book. I, I actually wanted more from those characters than we got.
1: Huh. And the turn that his story takes is, a, is a, I thought, a really interesting, another interesting way that Lanchester used his obviously deep knowledge of, of different kinds of financial markets and different kinds of financial instruments because Freddie camo as you mentioned emily he's a soccer star but he's a teenager i mean he's the reason his father has come with him is because he is very very young and has never been to london before he becomes quickly like a fan favorite because he's put in at in the second half of games and makes these amazing plays but very early in his career about midway through the novel, he, through just an accident of fate, as so many things happen in this book, he completely blows out his knee. He's a little bit too fast for an opponent, and the opponent fails to alter his slide tackle appropriately, and he, and he tackles Freddie Camo right in the leg and blows out his knee Like potentially permanently. And so Freddie's story and his father's story for the second half of the book become them navigating their way through this unbelievably convoluted insurance policy that has been created by the team – that had been created by the team to ensure Freddie Camo's life, his health, his legs basically – and so there's all these terrible scenes in which different doctors give different judgments on the, how permanent the damage actually is, and they have to negotiate then with the team and with the insurance company what kind of payout they're going to get, who will get the payout, and when, and will Freddie ever be able to play again in England or anywhere. And it's, it was such a stark portrayal of the way that Freddie's life and purpose had been commodified, and and he, he, his entire life could be easily boiled down to specific sums of money that, that the actuaries at an insurance company could quantify so simply, I thought was a really potent image. And yes, I did want a little more of them, but
2: I thought he really served a, a really great purpose in this book. See, I wanted much less of him. Mm,
0: tell I, us I, why.
2: <laughs> I, I, I liked the the ending to that story, the idea that eventually um, the insurance company is willing to give him the contract that he signed, all the money that the contract uh, would have guaranteed him as long as he never plays soccer again. Uh, And his manager, yeah, professionally, right. And his his manager ends up uh, negotiating with them so he can play back in Senegal, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, where he's from, um, because the amount that he would get paid there is so small that it's just not worth it to them to care. I thought that was an interesting conclusion. But in the meantime, we get all these chapters about Freddie, who I didn't feel like I knew at all. I mean, he's kind of a a cipher in the way that, you know, a great athlete can be. He's such a physical, you know, he's so invested in what he can do physically. He's not, um, doesn't have some particularly gripping interior monologue. No,
0: he's definitely drawn as the teenage boy kind of. Right, but I mean, most of those chapters are in. And he's most not... of
1: the chapters are in the voice of his dad, right,
0: right. right.
2: Uh, but neither of them has any real connection to the other characters in the book. There's the manager, and there's them, but they have no relationship to the Younts. They have no relationship to Zbigniew or to Quintina. I mean, the, th- these these stories just felt so They're atomized. disparate. Yeah. I mean in a way often I thought this book felt like a collection of short stories that had been broken up into little pieces and then you know shuffled
0: artfully yes. yeah
2: so uh, you know it felt like more of a story collection than a novel in some ways and one in which you had to read several pages to get to then the next part of that although
0: story. the chapters are very short that was a smart thing he did structurally I think
1: Oh, that actually drove me crazy. That was like the one thing (laughs) structurally about the novel that drove me nuts because – I mean I do – I definitely get what you're saying, David. It does feel atomized. It does at times feel like individual stories that are interrupted here and there. And those interruptions often bother me. Like I often felt as though a four-page chapter in someone's voice was just not doing it for me. And I wish that he had just sort of collected those bits and pieces into greater – bits and pieces so I could get a momentum with the character without feeling like I'm leaping into another character necessarily. But I will also say that it didn't feel like a short story collection split in different ways, because even when the characters don't meet, there are obvious parallels and similarities and themes running through their lives that make this to me a, a, truly a novel. I mean, not a collection of short stories, even a thematically linked collection of short stories. Even if Freddie Camo never meets... Roger Young, for example, there are obvious parallels in their lives and obvious tracks that they're taking that seem to me to make this a real book and a real novel in a way that just a collection of stories wouldn't.
2: Whereas
0: I think I liked the short chapters because they were masking the essential weakness of the book, which is that these (laughs) characters weren't – there was nothing more to dig into.
2: That's exactly how I felt. In fact, I liked the short chapters at the beginning and then started to get frustrated with them as I realized, you know, the story wasn't kind of building any momentum for me. It's striking to me that we have not yet talked about the Kamals really at at all.
0: Right. Who are supposed to be at the heart of the novel but are also ciphers, I think, to some degree. Oh,
1: I didn't think – they are ciphers at all?
2: I don't know if they're ciphers, but I don't see how their story – Dan, um, maybe you have an idea about this and you can set me straight because I don't see how their story uh, connects thematically in the way that you were just talking about. I mean he's um, – it's, uh, it's Shaheed, right, who ends up getting arrested Yeah, and, and did you, I
0: was mixing up Shaheed and Usman, two of the brothers, until the end. I had to go back last night and remind myself who is who. And they're introduced fairly carefully in the beginning. But I felt like Lanchester wanted there to be at least three Muslim men so that we have three types. And yet the two of them were blurring together for me. And I think that's a reflection of the shortness and the, just the multiplicity of different people we're keeping track of.
2: Right. And also the 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 whole storyline felt to me like, well, this is a big London novel. I need to have some Muslims in it. And what's going to happen to them? Well, one of them is going to be wrongfully detained. And I think he handles it pretty sensitively. I think the characters are, are reasonably drawn. But it just felt so separate from everything else that was going on to me.
1: Yeah, I don't disagree with that. I mean, that that story did strike me as fairly formulaic and... And more predictable than most of the stories in the book in the sense that you did get the feeling from the beginning, well, what – given Lanchester's obvious sympathies and London's obvious nervousness on issues of terrorism, that there was going to be some way – and also that very early in the novel, um, Shahid runs into this – Former jihadi who this moron who he had once been friends with, um who ends up crashing on his couch forever and sort of saying vaguely ominous things that he was that that this was going to be the turn that the story took and but at the same time, while I didn't love that he made that choice, I did love the way he personified and characterized all of the Kamals, all of that family. And they w- did remain very distinct for me, Emily, in a way that I guess they didn't for you. And um, and part of that had to do with the, with the ways that Lanchester clearly delineated their specific feelings about the country that they were in, from resignation on the part of the shopkeeper, Ahmed, and f- all the way to sort of real, vivid, repugnance on the part of Usman to sort of grudging acceptance on the part of Shahid and then the way that they all came together in, in, one of what i thought was one of the really great comic set pieces of the book which was the horrible visit of mrs kamal their mother who comes from pakistan and who is just utterly horrible in every way and not well really, she gets was, her
0: son out of prison so she I does in her the end for effectiveness
1: sure absolutely but she is like unbelievably unbearable and difficult to deal with and and just those scenes in which they pick her up at the airport and for, from the instant they pick her up they've Even before they pick her up, things just start going wrong. Traffic goes horribly and they start sniping at each other. And just like the idea of her looming there at the airport waiting to criticize them all is enough to drive them all over the edge. Like I love that portrait of that family. Um, And I did and I loved at the end that it that it is Mrs. Kamal and her horribleness who is it's her who is makes the decisions necessary to get Shahid out of prison. Um, But I just really love those stories, even as I was disappointed that that was a choice that Lanchester was forced by his own predilections or by his desire to tell a certain story to make. Like, I didn't love that that was the way the story went, but I loved the way he handled it in the end.
0: I think that's a really good defense of it, Dan. I was thinking in those portions of the book about um, Amy Waldman's novel The Submission, which is a post-9-11 book that we talked about on the book club last year. and. That book has – more spends much more time with the Muslim character who is the architect who's very central to the plot. And right. it's very much a New York novel in the way that this is a London novel. It has these social types from New York. And somehow I feel like because Waldman really, I think, does much more with the architect character and his girlfriend – I'm remembering neither of their names, but that's just me um, – it just felt – I don't know. I felt like while I like your rousing defense of this family that they a little bit paled in comparison. I don't know. Well, sure.
1: But in the submission, those two characters plus the woman who sort of serves as the linchpin of that story, the immigrant who lives in Queens, um, the widow – um, they're like, I mean, they're like seventy-five percent or sixty percent of the important characters in that book. There's five important characters in that book, and there are three of them. And this one, there's over twenty important characters, and this is one storyline. And so it didn't. It but didn't, maybe
0: that's too many characters. Like maybe it's better to have a novel where you pick and you really like go in deeper. And I'm just ex- using this comparison to express my general preference. Maybe
1: right. so. Yeah. I mean, I like a I like a novel like this where. I'm guaranteed to enjoy the the you know the company of most of the characters and if there are characters who I don't like, I mean, one great thing about short chapters is four pages later, you're out of that character. And you don't have to worry about him for another 40 pages.
0: The novel for people with short attention spans.
1: Yeah, it is sort of the shortest attention span theater of novels, I guess, so that's true.
2: <laughs> but the problem for me is that uh, it didn't hold my attention. And actually a big kind of central story that, you know, pulls a book along is what grabs my attention. So for me, right. it was, you know, each four pages. Oh, OK, now we're with this guy again. Nothing's going to happen to him either. Um,
0: You're a serial drama man. Yeah, I am too.
2: And and in fact, I mean, I to be honest, I, I you know, I'm a slow reader. Um, I really like to uh, enjoy sentences. I think Lanchester's sentences are fine, but not great. Um, so maybe this is just the wrong kind of novel for me because I'm not someone who can just pick up a book and just kind of whiz through it.
0: In fact, I recall that you threatened to drop this one halfway I, I through at one I, point. <laughs> I did.
2: I would have, if if, if not for this discussion we're having now, I would have stopped after about 80 or 100 pages. Uh, one last thing I want to talk about in this book, and I would be really interested to
1: hear your guys' take on this, is I, I was interested in trying to figure out what message Lanchester specifically was – conveying about London at the time of the crash. The novel set in 2008. The crash is hitting. It obviously hits some characters more than others because some characters are more wrapped up in the market and in real estate than others are. Um, Roger loses his job. Not exactly related to the crash, but in a way that certainly dovetails interestingly with the crash. You know, But others face sort of non-market related crashes, like Freddy blows out his knee and Smitty, the artist gets outed and loses sort of the one thing that made him unique and Quintina faces deportation but at the same time lanchester seems to be celebrating london as a place for the exceptional to thrive but then also at the same time there's one passage i wanted to read actually it's on page 179 characters talking about london and working there and they and says uh, he worked in one of the only places in modern britain in which it was acceptable to demonstrate Your superiority, one of the few areas in which doing better than other people was the whole point. And that's sort of a a celebration of exceptionalism in London and sort of a condemnation of it. And it becomes more of a condemnation when you realize that the character who's saying it is Rogers, like completely psycho assistant, who in fact is a criminal. Um, But at the same time, one of the things that Lanchester obviously loves about London is that there are not only ordinary people, but exceptional people who thrive there. But then at the end of the book, it's the ordinary people who triumph in a way. I mean, the characters who really come out of this book with really happy endings are Zbigniew and uh, Matia who end up in love and with a sort of fairly bright future ahead of them. But what, what do you think Lanchester is saying about the way that London Rewards or punishes the exceptional or the way it did at least at the time of the crash.
0: You know, Dan, you've done a good job, I think, of setting up what confused me about the end of the book. I felt like Lanchester was crueler to most of these characters than I thought he was going to be and that it seemed a little um, unjustified. But now I think... Based on your quite brilliant setup, that what's going on is his own ambivalence toward these exceptional, sharp elbowed, individualism driven characters. That he has, mm-hmm. to, even though, of course, you're right, he loves them. He loves this about London. He also has to make them kind of suffer for their um, sins of self regard.
2: Yeah, the exceptional people all turn out fairly badly. I mean, Freddie gets his leg broken. Um, the assistant who. Uh, whose chapter you were just reading from Dan uh, is arrested, I think. He's caught. Yeah, one hopes so jail. since
0: he's been stealing millions of dollars from his company in this bizarre trading scheme. Right. One other right.
2: exceptional minor character, the uh, lawyer that the Kamals employ is is not particularly uh, no, sympathetic. No, she seems
0: very pretentious.
2: Yeah, and very into her own exceptionalism. Right.
0: And she is like a civil rights lawyer who's also actually all about herself.
2: Right. And and the characters, is, like you said, Dan, the uh, more ordinary, ordinary ones all seem to come out much better. And at the very end, um, Roger is sort of committing or trying to commit himself to a more ordinary existence. Uh, and one that I think is going to take place outside of London, if I'm not yes. mistaken. So, yeah, I actually think that the the attitude the book seemed to have was, was more sympathy with the ordinary. Um, I'm not sure what to make of that because it does seem somewhat out of keeping with the setting. Um, I mean, it, it's a, it, setting London is a mix, right? And it is partly a place where people from all over not only the U.K., but all over the world uh, come because it offers opportunities that other places do not.
0: I mean, isn't this in some ways a retort to the bonify, bonfire of the vanities 80s sensibility where, you know, these people who are supposedly running the world, in fact, ruining it, get their comeuppance in this book?
2: Right. Yes. Yeah, Smitty is another one, right? Because he's outed unfortunately off stage, we don't really know how that happened right i thought that was frustrating but he is yeah. another exceptional character who is brought low and i do think it's yeah i do think it's meant as a kind of rebuke to that the, the go-go 80s um the the, the
0: masters whole, of the universe yes
2: um right but
1: in a way that in a way that's actually like the re- least realistic part of the novel because in actual london as an actual new york those people are very rarely brawlow. Right. In just fact, the guy comes
0: back. Arabella is coming back to London. Right.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, I don't see Roger and Arabella staying out in the country for very long, even if everyone does love all of Roger's cookouts. Where else will she get her lychee martinis? Right. Precisely.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, all right. No, so, I'm...
1: in the end, you guys, recommend, not recommend. Sounds like Dave, you're a not, David, you're a not recommend. Definitely not recommend.
0: Mm-hmm. I recommend it to people who like these kind of chopped up two-dimensional character novels, the people with short <laughs> attention spans. There are other people I've talked to this summer who have really enjoyed this book. So clearly it's it, it has its um, niche. But it uh, wasn't for me.
1: I definitely recommend it. And it was for me. And I think I do have often a short novelistic attention span. Um, but I mostly viewed this as a gigantic, fun grab bag of characters, many of whom I really liked. Uh, and an extremely effective portrait of certain types of people in London at a certain time. Like, it really struck me as a novel written by a guy who spent a lot of time looking around the place where he lives and drawing characters who are, if sometimes caricatures, really, really great, vivid
2: caricatures. Hey, can I
0: throw in the book I would recommend instead of this one? (laughs) Sure, yeah. (laughs) Which I was just thinking about, Brick Lane by Monica Ali. Mm
2: -hmm. Okay, and I'm going to do that too because the book I would recommend is The Line of Beauty by Alan Hollinghurst, which I I take not only as, um, I think, a better book, but also sort of a rebuke to this this uh, idea of the London novel that has to be big and has to have a million characters, I think that's a great London novel. It has a relatively small cast of characters and a really focused story, and it's terrific.
0: Ooh, I'm writing that down now.
1: It's really good. However, I recommend Capital. <laughs> <laughs> good that's for the you. book I recommend instead of Capital. Um, all right, well, thank you very much, Emily and David. I'm glad we had this conversation, even though you guys are wrong, wrong, wrong.
0: <laughs> As always. Thanks,
1: Dan. As always. Uh, a program note uh, for listeners, our next audiobook club selection is Gone Girl, Gillian Flynn's best-selling thriller about a very modern marriage gone sour, a leading, in fact, to the wife's disappearance and some plot twists that you will not believe. Also, a great predatory lawyer character, not unlike the predatory lawyer here in Capital. Um, so take Gone Girl to the beach, and once you have picked your jaw up out of the sand, please join us for our discussion on September 7th. The homepage for the Slate Book Review is slate.com/books and you'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Slate Audio Book Club at slate.com/abc. Please visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com/slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, which helps other people discover the show. Search for Slate Audiobook Club in the iTunes store. And please don't forget to leave a comment while you're there. Our producer is Dan Pashman. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For David Hagland and Emily Bazelon, I'm Dan Cois. Thanks for listening.